I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast, and welcome also to the year 2020. It's a new decade, and of course, it's also a presidential election year. For the next 11 weeks, I'm going to be focusing on elections and elected officials, interviewing people who have won elections either recently or in the past, talking to them about their experience on that side of the ballot box. I'm also going to do a couple of episodes that are not interviews where I explore different kinds of voters, values voters, non-voters, primary voters. So for the next 11 weeks, we're going to really focus on the electoral system and the people who participate in it, both as voters and as people who are seeking votes. To start the season, I have an interview with Senator Lou Frederick. He is an Oregon state senator. He's a Democrat. He represents North and Northeast Portland. In fact, he is my senator. He's the senator for the neighborhood I live in and where the White Tiger Studio is, where I'm recording this right now, and where the interview was recorded. Senator Frederick came in and he really shared his thoughts and experiences going all the way back to his childhood when he participated in the civil rights movement in the South through the impressions he has as an Oregon state senator. So that's this week's episode. And let's just get right into the interview. Senator Lou Frederick. So you've been in the Oregon state legislature for about a decade now. What got you into politics in the first place? Well, it's not the politics of, uh, of Oregon so much. Uh, my first tear gas was when I was about eight years old. So I was in the middle of the civil rights movement growing up. And I, uh, my playmates, uh, when I was in elementary school in Atlanta, um, were, were Marty Yolanda and Dexter King. So uh, we marched every other weekend with a lot of the folks at that time. My tear gas was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but we moved from Baton Rouge to Atlanta. So out of the frying pan into the fire. And uh, so I was involved in some form of politics for quite a while. My my first candidate that I worked for was a guy named Julian Bond. And I went and, and put leaflets out in the neighborhood for him. And what uh, year was that? Probably 66. So I was probably 12, 14 years old. You went out, you did some grassroots activism. You you'd leafleted and did you knock doors? Well, yeah, mostly leafleted. Didn't knock doors. Just he wanted us to pass out uh, leaflets. And so we did that. So you've um, been active in politics since you were elementary school student. Yeah, elementary, middle school. And, uh, and, and certainly in high school. I desegregated my high school. So I, I was involved in that. But, you know, if you're, if you're a black kid in the middle of the South in the 60s on a university campus, which is where I was, 
you were, there was an expectation that you would be involved in making change. And so that's what I was part of. And you took to it very naturally, it sounds like. Well, it was just something that we did. I, I can't, I, I, it wasn't something that was, um, was organized so much for me to do, but I just did it. Hey, what about your adult life? Well, adult life, uh, you start to deal with the Vietnam War issues. I went to a college, Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, Quaker School. Kent State took place my freshman year. Went to uh, D.C. with the rest of my college. The uh, whole school pretty much closed down. Um, we went to uh, D.C. and and then um, got involved with the uh, well, Vietnam War, doing a lot of things with that, but also involved with uh, helping with folks uh, who were overdosing on drugs of one form or another and suicide hotline I helped organize and got involved with theater. Uh, my original plan was to be a virologist, so, but I got involved with uh, what was going on in the streets and had to choose between the bench and the streets and basically chose the streets as part of a, a theater and political science and psychology minor. So you are in a really good position to answer the question I ask all of my guests, which is, what is something that used to outrage you but no longer does? And then why do you think the change has occurred? I think that the, probably the thing that used to outrage me was the, the slowness of change. I'm now a little older and I have a sense that it's not just requiring that somebody ad- ad- address your issue right away. You've got to build a process so that you are able to work with people to get some things done. doesn't mean you stop pushing your particular idea, but you have to understand how things work, and that's how I deal with things now. I've been a college professor for 25 years, and the frustration with the slow pace of change is a common trait among young people. And did you have that trait when you were younger? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I expected that I would, we would change the world and I still think I'm going to change the world, but I expected that I would change the world um, back in uh, 1964 when I first um, walked into my high school and people were throwing things and yelling things at me. And I still felt as though I could change the world then. And I continue to feel that. I still have that optimism that people will understand that we, the whole idea is for us to make things better for the people who come after us, not just for ourselves. But that optimism uh, is tempered with the fact that I understand that there are folks who, uh, and our culture, uh, does not necessarily support that kind of approach. You've seen the world get better over Absolutely. the course of your lifetime, slowly and unevenly, certainly. Well, yes, but get better. I think that that's, that's the key. Now we are, still have some significant problems, uh, and they are very visible. But I know that it's unlikely that I'm going to have a, a group of people coming at me throwing ashes and and ice and other things, wearing white hoods. Uh, They may be in khakis and polo shirts, but uh, even with that, I also know that that they are going to be considered outliers, not the normal. Now, you mentioned that you got sort of politicized by national issues, yet you then ran for county commissioner and you ran for state legislature. How do you see your position right now in terms of state, local, national issues? Well, I end up dealing with national issues on a regular basis, but they are at the local level. I mean, a, a good example would be that we managed to to provide a, a new approach to dealing with the uh, folks who have been who have been either incarcerated or had been uh, had had records for marijuana offenses that would no longer be marijuana offenses but it's difficult to get those offenses expunged 
uh, it's a lot easier now. Now you can actually go online and get things done in a different way. Uh, and that affects not only those individuals, but it in fact, affect, uh, in fact affects their communities, their families, their kids. They can get, if they can get those, those things uh, expunged, that affects their, their jobs, education, housing, all of those things. Well, when we do that in Oregon, uh, and I talk about it with my friends who are in Pennsylvania or, uh, or someplace else, they suddenly go, well, Oregon did it. So we can deal. We can do some things, or we have what's we have. We passed a bill regarding risk limiting, auditing for voting machines. That is something that's going to be extremely important in the 2020 election. Those voting machines can be and are hacked. Well, we managed to pass the risk limiting audit so that checks the paper ballot, the paper hand marked paper ballots in Oregon uh, against what the machines are counting. That makes a big difference. Well, when we do that again, it also ends up being something that the rest of the country looks at and goes, maybe we should do that if we want to make sure our integrity is at the level it should be. Now, you mentioned earlier that you are more comfortable with the slow pace of change and, and frustration. How frustrating was it to get these bills through that you're talking about? It was at times very frustrating. I still have bills that I'm still wanting to work on, and we will be working on them um, during the short session coming up in February. But also, I have some things that I want to continue working on. And so that's why I'm running for re-election, so that I can get some of these things done. I know that it takes some time. Sometimes it surprises you how quickly you can get some things done. And that can often be because of a national experience or some sort of um, message that's been out there that people say, oh, that's what he's talking about. That's what we're talking about. The profiling and, and the marijuana issues and, and uh, mental health issues. Uh, all of those things can suddenly become uh, important and understood by the general public by way of an incident or by way of, of, of a series of media articles of one form or another. That can change. But, so they can change quickly. But it, sometimes it takes building up that, uh, that knowledge, building up that case uh, in a way that, that, that's supportive. That's, that's part of what takes place. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. You're a Democrat, and you have yes. a supermajority in both houses of the state legislature. What kind of environment does that create, and how does that compare to the environment when you did not have that situation? It makes a difference. It doesn't overwhelm the situation. Um, you want to work with the rest of the state. And so you have, you have colleagues who are coming from areas that are not as concerned or, uh, about what's going on in, a, in an urban environment, uh, but they're concerned about what's going on in a rural environment. And you have to be able to make that connection and work with them. Um, the rural communities have been devastated by the decrease of, of timber jobs and, uh, and the lumber coming out of the woods. That's the case. You no longer have mills 
uh, in places like Coos Bay, where you used to have 15. So you have, you have to understand what those concerns are because they affect what happens here in Portland and the economy, not only in Portland, but the rest of the state. So you need to be able to have that kind of connection. There are folks who would use that in other ways uh, because they only know how to approach things in a way that is uh, adversarial. The other aspect, though, quite frankly, is we also have a media that only knows how to approach things that are adversarial. If you have... Uh, 90 plus percent, 96 percent of the bills in the in the legislature passing either unanimously or with with small opposition, one or two people, you don't hear about those. It doesn't make a good story. It's not a good story, and so you don't have people coming down there. And we no longer have the media covering um, the uh, what's going on in, in the legislature. You used to have bureaus in the basement of the Capitol for every commercial television station in Portland. They don't; ex- those bureaus don't exist anymore. Those the folks come down, they helicopter in, they decide that this is that they have a top story that is visual, um, and then they will leave without understanding what's actually taking place. And so we had that last June, where we had um, logging trucks around the Capitol. The media only concentrated on that when the, the House passed a Family Leave Act that was incredible for the, for the state and for the, for the country. Uh, but on that same day, you never heard anything about that Family Leave Act, even though that was going on right outside, right, right inside from the, the logging trucks. And did that have a lot of bipartisan support, the Family Leave Act? It had bipartisan support. I won't say a lot of bipartisan support, but it did have bipartisan support. But again... You never would have heard. I mean, the number of stories that were done uh, in the broadcast media, which is where I spent 17 years, uh, were were minimal at best. I don't recall very many. Uh, I only recall two, actually. So this is the, but it's an important factor. This is a podcast about outrage, and it strikes me that there's a source of potential outrage here. I've heard from other guests that the way the media talks about politics is a source of outrage for them. Would you put that in your outrage category? Because I was going to get around to asking you what currently outrages you. (laughs) Well, there's a narrative that the media tends to use, which is adversarial. It's the it's the narrative that that's being encouraged in uh, journalism departments around the the country, around the world, I think. Uh, It is a narrative that makes sense if if you were still in a particular time frame. Uh, I always say that um, the uh, news media tells you what is unusual and with the idea that you know what the usual is. But if you are now living in a, in a society, as we are, I think, where people do not know what their next-door neighbors do, they don't know what the usual is. So they don't have a sense of that. So they rely on something else to tell them what the usual is. They're now relying not only on broadcast media, but they're relying on the, on the Internet, which actually narrows your, your view of what's, what's taking place. So you don't really have a sense. And you have things that are outrageous that, that take place and have been, been outrageous for some time. The, um, I remember going down to the Thurston shooting uh, and having a Japanese TV crew come up to me and ask me how many guns kids were allowed to bring to school. And I said, none. Well, no, no, no. We see this all the time. That that's how We see that on, 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 on your television, on your newscasts. So it's how many, not, not, not can they. 
Um, we still have people who believe that that's what's taking place. Um, you you have folks who would tell you that Northeast Portland is just a you know a, a terrible place to live because people are, are constantly in uh, gangs are constantly roaming the streets and and they they believe that because they've only seen a, a video of of one incident or something like that taking place and they just decide that that's all of North and Northeast Portland. Obviously, it isn't, but they. They believe that. So we don't have a real sense of what is really going on, what the real narrative is for our communities anymore. And that's not just the media's fault. You're indicating that the media coverage of politics is very adversarial, and is your experience of it that there's some adversarialness and, of course, some cooperativeness? Actually, I think so. And there's also some friendliness, even though people can get outrageous. Um, that's not, not a surprise, but any sort of... Um, activity that is outrageous is given significantly more attention than the fact that I will go and have coffee with a, one of my colleagues uh, who's in, in eastern Oregon or, uh, or you know, having lunch and get a tour of a farm in, in the Willamette Valley or have some time talking with, with folks along the coast. We, we don't go in ready for battle. I've heard this from a number of people who work in politics that behind the scenes it's way more collegial and less adversarial than it seems. So how, if at all, could there be a balance in the picture that the American public gets of what really goes on in politics? Well, I think we no, I think we can find a new way to approach it. Um, one of the classic issues that I run into is is people understanding that we're try, actually there to try to get solutions, not to beat each other up. And there is, in fact, a, a journalism effort right now that's called solution journalism. Um, where people are, in fact, saying, okay, how do we, uh, if somebody comes up with ways to approach things um, and, and change things, how do we report on that? Uh, I had a reporter once when I was working for the Portland schools uh, tell me that uh, his job was to show what the problems are, not what the solutions were. And I said, so you don't want to show that there are any, anybody's looking at solutions. You just want to show that there are problems constantly. Well, yeah, that's how some folks really rely on that. But it's also the way that some academics, frankly, have dealt with things. The idea is to find uh, what's how to be critical. A critical thinker is to show what the problem is uh, and where the, where the holes are, not where you see good things happening and where the solutions are. I'm not talking about, you know, happy, happy, happy kind of news or something. But when someone comes up with an idea that looks at, um, how you might change uh, the carbon issues, or how you might change how we, you might deal with the overuse of testing in our schools. It's important to say, okay, what would you do? When I had students from various um, uh, colleges come down and tell me that they wanted more money for the schools, I said, okay, that's fine. Now, where do you want us to get that money from? Give me a solution there. Don't tell me how terrible it is and what you need. Are you right? We need to do that. How do we solve this problem? That's a different question. Many people in the American public feel as though, of course, they want their elected officials to be solution-oriented, to be pragmatic. One of the problems that people often express is how ideological and how divisive politics is. But they also, it sounds like you want them to know that they can, can and should and need to come forward with their own voice and voicing solutions instead of just their outrage. Well, I think that that's, that's exactly right. I think we need to have 
both of those things taking place. There are things that to be outraged about, that people, uh, we just had a shooting down in New Orleans, and somebody pointed out that not only did we have a shooting, yet another shooting, but the folks who were involved in that shooting now will probably have to deal with medical issues for the rest of their lives. Those that, that, that live through the shooting will, will deal with medical issues for the rest of their lives that could easily bankrupt them and easily bankrupt their families. So that's a long-term concern. There'll be pre-existing condition issues that they'll have to struggle with. We need to be able to think about things in a much broader fashion than the easy kind of approach that we've seen in the past. I mean, our, our houseless, homeless population issues are significant. What do we do about those? Because they're not just one solution kinds of things. Obviously, housing is one, but so is mental health. So is domestic violence. So is uh, the foreclosure crisis and the impact that that had. Uh, the jobs, how you deal with that. I, was, I went to a, a tent to talk with, to talk with folks, uh, homeless and the guy was coming out of the tent on a, with a bicycle and a suit. He was suit and tie. He packed up his tent every night, uh, drove to his uh, retail store jobs. He took, had two jobs, but he couldn't afford a place to live. That's a broad set of issues that we need to be able right. to deal with. And we need to understand that those things are not going to be solved in half an hour. They're not going to be solved screaming at one another. They're not going to be solved by just a, a simple concept of saying we're going to get this from somebody else or we're going to somehow punish you into doing something. We've got to figure out, we've got to, we've got to become adults and figure out how we deal with that. Now, you, you sound, you've, you've been involved in public life for a long time and you've come to terms with the frustratingly slow pace of change, but you also seem extremely optimistic to me. Do you have any level of optimism that media coverage, you mentioned solution journalism earlier, that... Journalists are going to be trained in a different way that going forward, we're going to get a different kind of coverage and that that will help to advance more solution-oriented politics? Or do you think that you're going to have to work on these solutions despite a largely adversarial media environment? Well, there are two aspects of that. One is a personal one. I think that part of my role is because I have this knowledge to pass it along to other folks and to help people develop their own approach. So I have been, um, that's one of the reasons for uh, attempting to try to get that PhD is to teach. I want to be able to bring that approach. I think that other folks are beginning to recognize this. I mean, the solution journalism idea was not something that was was well uh, placed for quite a while. I know some reporters who rejected it outright uh, 10, 15 years ago, and they are now part of that whole effort. So there's something that's that's taking place in the, the community to say that you've got to do something about that. But I think that we're, I, so I am optimistic on that, but I think we're also going to see folks uh, stepping forward and saying, this isn't helping us. This is not helping us at all. The adversarial approach, uh, the gotcha kind of approach, uh, doesn't really, be, is not no longer effective then what can be? And I think as a, as a culture, we're going to start looking at that. And we are starting to look at that. How far that goes and how quickly, I couldn't tell you. It does seem that people are craving a healthier politics and aren't necessarily always sure how to get there. Yeah. It seems like you're talking about a particular pathway that could help get us there, which is a sort of style of coverage of politics that is more balanced, looks at solutions, doesn't just look for the exciting story that's visually able to be visually told and gotcha journalism. 
uh, and you're optimistic that that's that that's potentially coming. I think so, but I, I've got to tell you, um, the balance issue is one of those things that that bothers me at times because you it's it's well we've got to get both sides of the issue. There's not two sides to whether the earth is flat, okay? That's a one-dimensional form of balance is that we'll give equal time to the two sides. When I say balance, I talk about a balance between, say, you know, uh, adversarial and collegial approaches, a balance between looking at politicians as people who are just trying to please their constituents and people who are problem solvers, Uh, a more overall kind of looking at things as large scale and interdependent, like you've discussed the issues you just mentioned before. Well, the balance is also understanding that there's a difference between governing and running for office. That's something that we also need to have an understanding of. We don't have that as part of our our basic narrative at this point. Uh, everyone concentrates, politicians and, and the general public, concentrates on, on a horse race situation, not on whether we're going to get some things accomplished. And we've got to, got to take a step away from that, in my view. This is very thought-provoking, and I always like to hear the words balance, and I also like to see people who are cautiously optimistic and also working hard to make sure those optimistic outcomes can come true. And you seem to be right along that avenue for me. And I really appreciate you coming in, spending your time. Thank you so much for coming in. Sure. Thank you. Well, there it is, episode 12 of the Pothole Problem Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Senator Lou Frederick for giving me and us his time and a very thought-provoking discussion of his experience, both as an activist and as an elected official. Next week, we're going to continue on with elected officials. I interviewed Oregon State Representative Shelley Bosshart Davis. She's a Republican from District 15. She is a freshman in the Oregon State Legislature, and this is the first elected position she's ever held, so she is very new to the political system. We're going to get her perspective next time. Right now, I'm going to leave you with the song. This is Up to You, an original song by Eric Todd Smith. Thanks to him for contributing, and thanks to you, as always, for listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast. Seems to come when you least expect it, when everything is fine. But then you see that you're not protected, and everything is on the line. Tell me what you're gonna do And it turns out that they're coming for you Everything you know is true Is up to you The rally's over, the crowd disperses And trash is scattered on the mall And pretty soon they'll be calling her sis And making someone take the fall Tell me what you're gonna do When it turns out that they're coming for you Everything you know